I was practicing law and I got hurt in a sports injury and I became a prescription opioid addict. And over the next 10 years, I was prescribed opioids by well-meaning doctor friends and I became addicted and slowly I started to deteriorate where I couldn't show up at work anymore and I couldn't run my firm, even though it was continuing to be successful until the day came when we ran out of cash and I couldn't make payroll. So I commingled client funds. I borrowed money from escrow to pay for payroll. And of course, that was a deal with the devil because there was no coming back from that. It was just a matter of time when I got caught. And then in early 2004, I got a phone call from government agents telling me that there was a warrant out for my arrest. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to episode 111 of the SIDCast. This is your host, Sid Finkelstein, and it's a pleasure to have as my guest today, Jeff Grant. And yeah, we're going to talk about a lot of pretty interesting things. You know, we've talked about Bernie Madoff on the podcast before with Jim Campbell, who's written a great book on Madoff. And I've had as guests, leaders in the past who have literally lost billions of dollars as CEOs through the decisions, the really bad decisions that they made. And I've had a former drug dealer on as a guest. And in each of these cases, they've spent their lives trying to fix what went wrong, trying to make amends by helping others, which I think is great. But boy, they had to go through a tough thing, a self-inflicted tough thing to get there. But these stories are always so interesting. There's so many insights about people and about life. And so when I heard about Jeff Grant, I thought this is a story in a similar vein, but different. And that's what happened to Jeff Grant. He became addicted to prescription opioids. He served almost 14 months in a federal prison some 15 years ago for a white collar crime that he committed in 2001 when he was a lawyer. And since getting out of prison, he's been on a long, long recovery process, resurrecting and recreating a new family. Going back to school, he earned a Master of Divinity from Union Theological Seminary in New York City. He majored in social ethics. And it's interesting because why does it take these type of traumatic experiences where you're committing white-collar crime, where you ended up getting yourself in a very bad position from your lifestyle that affected you and, and you became addicted? When you know, we hear these stories, we kind of wish, boy, I wish that Jeff didn't have to do all that, didn't have to suffer that way to get to where he's ended up now. But that's his story. He served in an inner city church in Connecticut as an associate minister and as a director of prison ministries. He co-founded Progressive Prison Ministries in Greenwich, Connecticut, which is the world's first ministry serving the white-collar justice community. And kind of amazingly, because it's a very unusual story, back in May of this year, of 2021, Jeff Grant's law license was actually reinstated by the Appellate Division of the Supreme Court of the state of New York. And that's some 15 years, 14 years after serving time. What a long haul and very unusual. He's now in private practice and he focuses in particular on legal crisis management. He's worked with many family owned and closely held businesses. He's worked with the white collar justice community and does a lot of pro bono work as well. 
You know, he's someone who's continued to be in the legal profession as a managing attorney of a 20-person-plus law firm, also in New York and Westchester. And he served as a general counsel to some large family-owned businesses and organizations as well. So his career is going great. He continues to spend a lot of time helping and working with people that have committed white-collar crimes to try to get their life back. And so he's been trying to create something positive out of something really, really negative. And he's going to share that story for us today on the SIDCAST. And I'm going to ask him, and you're going to hear him. You know, he's very honest about this. Now, how did this happen? How did you let yourself get into this situation? How does that happen? And all of us think, you know, we would never do that. No, we would never do that. And I like to think that's exactly right. We would never do that. But there are people that do fall. There are people that do take the wrong turn. And it's self-inflicted. And they're not bad people to start. But why does it happen? You know, how did he think about it in those days? What was it like to be in prison and the jail door closes behind you? And how did he manage to walk and kind of craft this return journey? I gave you some of the facts just now from Union Theological Seminary to ministries that he's founded. How does that happen? How do you do that? And what are the lessons that you've learned along the way? So it's another one of the kind of amazing SIDCAST stories where we talk to people from so many different walks of life that have, let's just say, an amazing story to tell and a story that we all could learn something from. Even though we haven't followed this path, we haven't committed a crime, the lessons learned through that path still have a lot of wide applicability. So let's bring Jeff Grant into the SIDCAST room and start episode 111. Jeff Grant. Welcome to the SIDCAST. This is Sid Finkelstein, and I'm delighted to have Jeff Grant as my guest today. Hello, Jeff. Hi, Sid. So nice to be here. Thanks for joining me. You're a podcaster yourself, among many other things that you do. And so I've been looking forward to our conversation. I'm going to start with a little bit of background. You know, I've had a lot of different people on the SIDCAST over the three years, and I don't know that any career track has been overrepresented, but certainly attorneys have not been underrepresented. And so I just want to start with the most basic of questions for you, which is why did you want to become an attorney? I would say that I never really thought there was any path for me other than to be an attorney. From when I was a little boy, it was something I was drawn to, certainly the intellectual challenge, helping people. What I thought innocently was being in a helping profession, doing good. I didn't have no idea, of course, what the complications would be or the rigor or the business aspects. But to this day, I'm proud to be a lawyer again because that's obviously part of my story. And I was proud to be a lawyer early. Yeah. And did you specialize in real estate early on or something else? Early on, I hung out my shingle right after law school. And so I did pretty much whatever came to me. It was very retail oriented in the sense that it was direct client contact. And over time, I started to take on more and more sophisticated real estate transactions. About 10 years in, I was representing some very large real estate concerns. They were brokerage and management and equities. And I was their outside general counsel. And I just took to it. And I love being a general counsel because as general counsel, as you probably know, there's kind of a mixed bag of representing the company, but also representing the individuals, you know, Mm -hmm. especially in a family owned or closely held corporation. And also general counsel is kind of a lawyer and a client at the same time, because there was a lot of specialty lawyers I had to retain on behalf of my clients and my institutional clients. And so I managed them, I oversaw them, they reported to me. And I love that aspect of being kind of like the guardian and protector of my clients. Yeah. It was a great way to go through life, of course, until the wheels fell off. So it occurs to me that there's a lot of trust that gets developed 
I mean, for any professional relationship, but financial advisor and, as you just described, outside general counsel, doesn't get any closer. You see everything that's going on. Why do you think that you were able to develop that trust? What did they see in you? Or is it something you thought about specifically? How did that actually happen? Because without that, I don't see how you can actually get to where you had gotten at that stage. I was kind of a brutally honest guy. I mean, it was brutal, but still with compassion and kindness, I think. But I told the truth in terms of what the situation was, what the downside of issues were. And I did that often multi-generationally because these family-owned businesses were often grandfather, father, grandson, or somewhere in that paradigm. And it's difficult being in the midst of a family where they're having family issues sometimes, and sometimes those issues are long-standing. Sometimes there's trauma related to it. Sometimes the issues are immediate. For example, I get a call at one o'clock in the morning that one of the young people got pulled over driving at 110 miles an hour, and I had to go out and take care of it. And so uh, it was kind of a little Michael Clayton fixer-ish Mm-hmm. You know, where I had to be constantly and consistently aware of what the mm-hmm. situation was within that family and business dynamic. And so the trust built up because I was always on point. Yeah. And the kid, I'm going to assume a kid that's driving 110 miles per hour or whatever the number was. What do you actually do when you call the one in the morning? Let's get to the nitty gritty just for a quick kind of side example. Well, at the time, my offices were in Westchester. And so there's kind of an art to walking into a police station or talking to a prosecutor and letting them know who the family is or letting them know who the company is. Because generally, these are companies that contribute greatly to the economics of that county, for example, or of the state. In the case of one of my clients, that was a real estate brokerage company. They had 23 offices, a thousand agents on the street. So if it was one of the owners, for example, or one of the owner's children or something like that, I mean, I'm talking hypothetically. Here we are where generally local police, local constables, local courthouses, they want to resolve things. They don't want to make things bigger than they are. And my job pretty much was get that young person, get them home Mm -hmm. fast, and then we resolve the issues later. And I was able to do that because I was very straightforward and I was uh, solution-oriented. Yeah. So Westchester County is a suburb of New York City, basically, northern suburb. Were you there actually on 9-11? On 9-11, I was in Westchester at the time. My offices had been in New York City for the first 10 years of my practice. And then I moved them up to Westchester. You know, so it's very curious because I was going down every Saturday morning. I was driving down to my therapist who was then in the West Village. I kept the same therapist who I had when I was in the city. And I was driving down and about two weeks before 9-11, I was in my car driving down on a Saturday morning and the sun was gleaming off the Palisades and it was just a beautiful, beautiful ride down. And when I got to the Spiton Dival Bridge, which is on the sawmill or the Henry Hudson, just north of the city before you enter Manhattan, I could not cross the bridge. I pulled my car off at that exit there, the last exit in the Bronx. And I pulled my car off and I called my therapist and I said, I don't know why, but I can't come into Manhattan. And it was a very strange kind of ethereal, something I didn't really understand. And he said, all right, well, you know, just go home and we'll talk over the phone. And the next time I was in Manhattan was about three years later after I had been arrested or I was in the course of being arrested. Right. That's a little spooky. Isn't it? Yeah. You know? So you actually did not go into the city. Well, 
that was two weeks before 9-11. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, I think we foreshadowed enough, right? You just <laughs> said arrested. What happened? I was practicing law and I got hurt in a sports injury and I became a prescription opioid addict. And over the next 10 years, I was prescribed opioids by well-meaning doctor friends and I became addicted and slowly I started to deteriorate where I couldn't show up at work anymore and I couldn't run my firm, even though it was continuing to be successful until the day came when we ran out of cash and I couldn't make payroll. So I commingled client funds. I borrowed money from escrow to pay for payroll. And of course, that was a deal with the devil because there was no coming back from that. It was just a matter of time when I got caught. The inevitable grievance investigation started, and I thought in my kind of drug-addled, desperate mind that post-9-11, that borrowing money from the SBA for, at that point, a economic injury disaster loan would be a good idea because they were advertising them. And despite the fact that I would have gotten approved for it anyway, I lied on the application and said I had an office that was close to ground zero in Manhattan, which was not true. I did have a mutual conference ability with another law firm there, but I overtly lied on the application. Not soon thereafter, not able to save my business, I resigned my law license and tried to commit suicide. Recovered from that attempt, went into recovery, went into rehab and then recovery, and then about 20 months later, so that was in early 2004, I got a phone call from government agents telling me that there was a warrant out for my arrest. That's the short version yeah. of a very difficult story. And the warrant was for what action that you did? Because you were describing a couple of things, one with the escrow and one with the SBA loan. Well, I got disbarred for the escrow violations. I got arrested for the misrepresentations I had made on the 9-11 SBA loan. Right. Did you know you were going to be disbarred? Like how early in that process do you know? Or do you hold out hope that maybe, you know, they'll slap you in the wrist and keep on going? I was on a lot of drugs. And did I hope that I was going to get out of it? Sure. I'd hired counsel and we were fighting. Things looked promising on some days and they looked very discouraging on others. And some days I just couldn't focus on it at all. I think if I had really been able to take a step back and kind of use the lawyer and business acumen that I use for clients, I would have understood the gravity of the situation. But like most people I've learned in the course of my helping other people who go through white collar crimes, I was in trauma and there was just no way I could wrap my head around it. Yeah. And were you married at the time? I was married. I had two children, kind of a domestic suburban life. I did very well as a lawyer. So we traveled a lot and we had all of the trappings, which probably was part of the problem because that lifestyle was not sustainable as my business was deteriorating. And so I took risks and I took chances that I otherwise shouldn't have taken. I mean, one example is that in 1999 or so was the run-up to the dot-com bubble. Right. And I was taking positions in clients' companies, hoping that one of them or more than one of them was going to create a big payday. And so I over-invested in these clients' companies and under-invested in cash. I didn't take enough cash from my clients to be able to support the firm. And then when the dot-com bubble burst in February or March of 2000, I was left in a very bad position. That description you just shared, Jeff, is almost like a gambler's mentality. You know what I mean? You're putting a lot of money in on some bets. And I understand, you know, there was a lot going on and that you weren't necessarily always thinking straight. But it is a bit of a 
I mean, it's a high-risk-taking approach to the world. And I suppose the other the things you described that it ended up leading to your disbarment and the sentencing were also high-risk. I mean, looking back, was that part of you? Was that because of the drugs? Was that always, like, even when you think about yourself as a younger, you get a thrill from taking on risks? I mean, legitimate risks, but you were comfortable with that. I'm sure you've reflected on that. I'm curious. You know, overall, I spent my life being fairly risk-aversive. I wasn't a gambler in the sense that I went to casinos, but in the sense that, you know, every once in a while on TV, I'll watch, say, the World Series of Poker or something like that. And I see them going all in. And I've reflected on that and that in many ways in my business career, I was going all in on every pot. And so I couldn't really afford to lose any of them, but that didn't stop me. And so whether or not it was a character defect or a function of my bipolar disorder, which I've since been diagnosed with, or the self-medicating I was doing with the drugs, the prescription opioids, I don't know what combination, but it's become very clear to me that I was betting my livelihood and the health of my family and my future Mm -hmm. in ways that were just reckless. Yeah. So can I ask you what your wife and kids said at this time to you and what you said Um, to them, really? Well, I was living a double life, so I don't really know what they noticed or didn't notice. But part of it was that I was a gregarious, backslapping kind of guy. I was a very loving father, very even if I wasn't a very good father in a sense. I wasn't the father who was teaching my children the right values probably, but I was certainly loving. And so when I tried to commit suicide and I was in rehab, I remember I was in maybe the fifth or sixth day of rehab and my kids could finally visit me. And we were sitting on the front steps of the rehab. This was at Silver Hill Hospital in New Canaan, Connecticut. And we were sitting on the front steps and my kids were crying and I was crying. And I remember one of my daughters saying to me, I don't even know who you are. And that was true. That's an absolute true statement. She didn't know who I I didn't know who I was. So I think it was impossible for her to know who I was. Yeah. I mean, what you're describing, a quote unquote normal life, a high achieving life, professional, doing a lot of great work for clients, doing well. And then it gets derailed. And of course, there was a drug impetus. There was something about you going for it. It's going to give a lot of people some pause. Thereby, the grace of God, go I. It's not hard. I mean, we know from the opioid settlements that are still happening now, how many people in America, around the world, but let's just say in the US, have been addicted, become addicted to this and continue to be. And I think during the COVID time period, the number of people that have died from drug overdose has been unbelievably high. It's always been high, unbelievably high. What do you think about that? I mean, do you blame someone for not only prescribing all these meds, but, you know, with Purdue Pharmaceutical, creating these things, knowing exactly what they were doing? And all this has now come out. And it's, of course, a legal thing. So I'm sure you've followed it very closely. What do you think about all this? It's very paradoxical in a lot of ways and very confusing because on one hand, it would be very easy for me to say that I was an early victim of the opioid epidemic. And in some ways that's true. And it's become a classic scenario where Mm. doctors overprescribe or not just overprescribe, but aggressively prescribe opioids to me. And I certainly can understand the view that this was something that was encouraged by the opioid manufacturers. But I don't want to in any way ever have anyone think that I'm not accepting complete responsibility for my behavior. Yeah, yeah. 
because I knew what I was doing, even if I, in some ways I was helpless to stop, I knew what I was doing. I mean, there was a method to it. There was the getting the prescription, there was driving to the pharmacy, there was the hiding it. I understood that that was maladaptive behavior. I just didn't care. I needed what I needed. And even though I had tried to stop probably a hundred times, Sid, and went through withdrawal symptoms, I was never going to do it again. But how many addicts or have you heard of or Mm -hmm. saying, I'm never going to do it again. And then three days later, they're doing it again. And that was me for a decade. So you mentioned your daughter saying, I don't even know who you are. Did your wife know what you were doing? My ex-wife, she says not. I probably was not someone who was so good to be around. I don't blame her for kicking me out, but I'm sure she blames me in a lot of ways, and she should. But did she actually know? It's such an interesting question because, yes, I did the best I could to hide it, but I had blown up to 285 pounds. I was falling asleep at red lights while I was driving with my family in the car. Even the pallor of my skin, I was a drug addict. And it would have been hard to not notice that some things were going on. But on the other hand, you know, I was overtly acting responsibly. The bills were getting paid. The mortgage was getting paid. So people see what they want to see. So you actually did go to prison. I did go to Uh, prison. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that first day when you went behind bars? Oh, yeah, of course. Of course you do. What do you remember? What did you see or feel that you can recall now? You know, the beginning of the day when I had two friends from Greenwich Recovery drive me out there was, in a way, it was kind of a sacred experience in a way because there was this kind of silence. And yet I was in a car with friends. And then one of my friends walked me into the prison, and this was a low-security prison. It was not a prison camp. This was a real prison with fences and guard dogs and razor wire. And I didn't really understand what what that meant. And we uh, stood in the lobby, and the judge had made a mistake on my paper, so I actually reported on Easter Sunday of 2006. And there was no one there to do an intake on Easter Sunday. But they cobbled together whoever they could. And my friend said goodbye when they came out and they said it was time for me to go in. And I walked behind a door. And as soon as I got behind the door, they spun me around, put handcuffs on me behind my back and escorted me into this area called R&D, which is receiving and discharge, where inmates come in and then at the end of their service, they leave. And I was asked to take off my clothes and they put all my clothes in a box and they said they were sending them back to my house. And the only thing I was allowed to keep were my glasses. And I stood there naked while they did a physical exam. And then the head lieutenant came out with a clipboard and asked me a lot of questions. And among the questions he asked me was, because he had my records in front of him, and he said to me, are you the lawyer? And I said to him, no, but I used to be. And I didn't really know that that was, you know, exactly the right response. You know, it was a humble response. You know, I wasn't pretending to be anything, but I was just answering the question as truthfully as I could. I was scared. And he said to me, you know, so long as you don't try to make money off of any of the other inmates while you're here, you know, basically sell them lawyering services, we'll get along fine. And I had no idea what he was talking about, Sid. I didn't even know you could. (laughs) sell lawyering services in prison to other inmates. 
And from there, I had to put on an orange jumpsuit and I was taken to solitary where many new people who arrive in prison are taken at the very beginning. And I only had to spend one night in solitary before I was brought out into population and sent to my unit. And during your time there, how did you interact with slash get along with other inmates? Well, at first it was scary and it's like being in a different culture. I mean, imagine getting off of a plane to Manchuria, for example, and Mm -hmm. you don't know the culture, you don't know the language, Mm -hmm. you don't know the medium of exchange and have to find a guide. And there were some compassionate people there who were helpful, but mostly because it was not a prison camp where white collar criminals go. There was one ex-lawyer, that was me, and there were two ex-doctors. There were five ex-stockbrokers or financial people of some sort. And all the rest, the other 1,500 men were basically drug dealers or inner city gangbangers. And what I found was that there were a lot of sensitive, beautiful, misunderstood people there who didn't have the first chances in life that I probably took for granted coming from, you know, a affluent suburb. And I learned more about human nature and respect and care and character in prison than I'd learned in my entire life leading up to that. So for 48 years, I just was what the Italians call uh, maleducato, which is poorly bred. And I had no idea, basically, that I was someone who didn't really understand the basic life lessons that one should have in order to be a person of character. But I learned a lot in prison. What did they teach you and how did this teaching occur? I mean, it's your own personal reflection and learning, of course. But you were now living in a community, in a world, people you never would have been near otherwise. People you probably would have been scared about in many cases. Here's an example. We lived in cubicles in a barracks. So there are 180 men per side in each unit. And in my cubicle, three of us were in the cubicle, one bed and then one bunk bed. And I had the upper bunk. So I was lying in my bed on the upper bunk and outside of each cubicle, because it's all open, there's 180 men out in the open. The walls of the cubicle are probably only four or five feet high. There were people just outside of our cubicle, three guys who were having some kind of conversation. They were speaking very, very loudly. And it was maybe 10 o'clock at night and I wanted to go to sleep and I was putting a pillow over my face and I was just trying to block out as much of the sound and as much of the ambient sound because it's very loud in these barracks as much as I could. But they were screaming and I couldn't take it anymore. And I bolted upright and I just yelled at the top of my lungs, uh, you know, will you shut the F up? And one of the guys who was my celly, meaning my roommate, my celly, He looked at me because he was sitting on his lower bunk and he looked at me and he said to me, are you trying to get yourself killed? And I had no idea what he's talking about. And then he said to me, he said, look, if they're speaking too loudly out there, why don't you just nicely go outside the cubicle and say to them, excuse me, but could you please move your conversation somewhere further down because I'm trying to go to sleep? He said, they probably would. These are people. This is not the kind of environment where you should be yelling at anybody. And it was such a rude awakening for me, like, oh my God, I don't even know how to talk to people. And what I learned was that mostly respect is a matter of keeping my mouth shut and that nobody really cared what I had to say about anything. And so over time, I learned that somehow positional power and money bought me the illusion that I had anything important to say and that anybody ever cared what I had to say. And the truth was, is that I was just a narcissistic mess. 
someone who had just never learned the basics of being engaged with people. And this was an important first step in Stepping Stone to learn how to listen and really approach people with kindness and compassion. Yeah. Wow. Were you there for, was it 13 months in prison? A little over 13 months. Yeah. So you probably resolved to change and do things differently. How did that come about? The big lesson I learned in prison about that was when I got there, I had to go see the compound psychologist or psychiatrist. I can't remember because I had drugs and alcohol on my jacket because of my addiction. So I went to see the psychologist and he asked me what I wanted to do for a job because you have to get a job when you're in prison. So he said to me, well, what kind of job do you want? And I said, well, I suppose I'll go to work in the library or in the education center and I'll teach other inmates business law. I'll teach them basic things that I understood that they maybe didn't. And he said to me, you know, you have about a year here. You're a short stayer. You have about a year here. And You've spent the last 20 years, as far as I can tell, behind a desk. And maybe what you can do while you're here is try something different than you've done for the last 20 years. Maybe you'll get a different result. And I said to him, like, what do you mean? And at that point, I'd probably put on 40 pounds of anxiety weight pre-prison. And he said, maybe you should go up to the recreation area to rec and talk to the guy who runs it, who's a guard, who's a CO. And tell them you want to work there. And you can spend the next year outside exercising and getting your body in shape. And it'll help you with your mind and your body and your spirit. And it was such a profound idea that this was a place of sanctuary and retreat and of change. And if I don't dedicate myself to doing things differently... I'm just going to potentially wind up in the same place I was. And that's what I did. And I wound up walking 14,000 laps around the track, which was exactly 3,500 miles, which was the equivalent of walking from New York to Los Angeles. But I did it over the next year. And that was something that not only was very healthy for me, but it kind of transported me out of the prison experience and into this kind of Zen-like experience that was one of the greatest experiences of my life. Sounds like a pretty wise person you met there to see that and to know that. So you were discharged. What happens next? I came home. I had to go to first to a halfway house and Mm. then to home detention. At that point, I didn't have a home to go back to. So I was living with a friend for a while in New Canaan, Connecticut. And I started going back to recovery meetings and I went to two or three a day and I started to volunteer So I volunteered at the rehab that I had gone to because that was in New Canaan, not far from where I was living. And then I volunteered in some criminal justice related organizations. And I saw that my calling was to be of service. And I had started on a faith journey at that point that I certainly didn't understand, which ultimately was going to lead to my becoming baptized as a Christian. And as a Jewish person, that was a big move for me. And even today, I consider myself Jewish and Christian. I consider myself a double belonger, which was not a term that I coined. Paul Nitter coined it, by the way. In his book, Without Buddha, I Couldn't Be a Christian. And I decided at the recommendation of a friend, of a pastor, actually, I decided to go to seminary. So I applied to Union Theological Seminary in Manhattan, and they accepted me. And I spent three years there as a student. And in 2012, I graduated with a Master of Divinity and set off to become a minister. That is really interesting. And this kind of, what did you call it? The double belonger? Was that the term? Yeah, double belonger. Yeah, that is such an interesting idea that I've never heard before. 
And all I could imagine is that if we had more double or triple belongers, we'd have a lot less war and disaster around the world. But that's a topic for the fantasy side of our conversation. So you got back into the legal profession kind of amazingly because you were disbarred and then kind of, how does anyone do that? How does that happen? It can't be very common in the first place. It's very uncommon for yeah. someone who's been incarcerated for a white-collar crime and been disbarred for white-collar crimes to be reinstated to the bar. I think that part of it is that many bars around the country have become much more open to people with felonies being mm. admitted to the bar. But that's different than being reinstated to a bar that you've been yes, disbarred right. from. So I think that the service and what I hope they viewed as exemplary behavior in the 19 years from when I was disbarred to when I was reinstated, I certainly had one I all the time on how my behavior and what my obligations, my career path, what it would mean if I ever did apply for reinstatement. But I didn't have a plan to become reinstated. Mm -hmm. I just didn't want to adversely affect that option if I ever chose it. And so what happened was while I was pastoring and then my wife, Lynn Spring, and I started the world's first ministry that served white-collar criminals and their families, that was a calling. That was something I really felt called to do from God. And it was going very well. And then in 2016, I was on the board of directors of a nonprofit. I had been on that board for six or seven years. And because of some fiscal issues that were going on in Connecticut, they asked me if I would be their CEO and executive director. And I understood that that was going to make me perhaps the first person incarcerated in the country for white-collar crime who was going to be made the CEO of a major criminal justice organization. And bold move on their part, for sure. And a responsibility I took very, very seriously. I did that for about two and a half years, helped straighten out the business, and then went back to the ministry. And about that time, I was looking at what my highest best use would be. And all these guys I had been working with who had been prosecuted for white-collar crimes, they needed spiritual support. They needed emotional support. They needed a friend. They needed someone to help them, shepherd them. But what they really all needed was good, efficient lawyering. You know, they needed people who understood what they were going through. And not to say there aren't a lot of fine white collar lawyers out there, there are, but none of them have any idea what it's like to actually go through it and to have the kind of sensitivity and empathy. And also when you hire a white collar lawyer, basically a criminal defense lawyer, they take you from one point to another, usually from the point of entry, they take you to sentencing and then you never see them again. But these are very complicated issues that people are going through and they're complicated in family-wise and they need a lot of different professionals. They need tax lawyers and bankruptcy lawyers and family lawyers and all kinds of different things are going on that weren't really adequately addressed. So I started to imagine what would it be like if I was a lawyer that really was able to help people through all of these complexities. And with that in mind, I set off to apply for reinstatement. And of course, that's its own story because it's not an easy thing to go through, the gauntlet that they put me through, but it worked out well. The description you just shared about what people that have committed white collar crimes, what they need is analogous to what you, I think, described at least in brief at the beginning of our conversation on family offices. There's a lot they need. It's not just formal attorney representation. There's a social dimension. There's an emotional dimension. So it's kind of interesting that you've created this. It's kind of going back to your roots with a totally different type of client. 
right? Did you realize that when you were doing that or just kind of? I definitely realized it. And I'm not sure it's a totally different type of client. They may have different issues because there's a white collar prosecution involved. But as I have set up this law firm now in Manhattan, although my clients are all over the country, mostly federal, but not exclusively federal. What I thought was that I would be the crisis manager, the crisis person for people going through white collar justice issues, going through white collar crimes issues. What happened largely is that I found out that I've become the general counsel, the outside general counsel again, to people who happen to have a white collar crime background or white collar crime issue. And that's very different because, for example, I have clients now who are setting up businesses, who are emerging from their issues, and what they need is good outside general counsel. Pretty much what I was doing 30 some odd years ago. But the one thing that I add that is unique is that I really understand the downside. Before it was theoretical, you know, it was something that how bad could things get? And so here's a little story. A very wise person said to me many years ago, when I was first starting lawyering, actually, a very wise person said to me, if you had to choose one thing you would change to make your car go faster, what would it be? And my answer was, well, I don't know. I would supercharge the engine. I had all kinds of ideas. And he said, you know, the one thing that you can change in a car to allow you to go faster is you can get better brakes because the better your brakes, the faster you can go. And I thought that was so profound. And what I've learned is that on the brakes, my client Mm. is the gas pedal. And it's the relationship, the synergy between the gas and the brakes is what makes it go efficiently or what allows it to go faster. And so that's the role I play. And I play it not only for people who are in crisis in white collar issues, but also for business people and for people in family issues where what they really need is someone to spell out for them, what's my downside? How bad can it get? And how do we protect myself? How do we protect ourselves from getting there? Right. So, Jeff, at this point, you've worked with a lot of white collar criminals or people have been accused of crime. Maybe not all of them are guilty, to be sure. But is there a pattern? And of course, you've done that. Is there a pattern? Is there a profile? Or are there dozens and dozens of reasons why this kind of happens to people? I don't know that there are dozens and dozens, but there are certainly a few. It's naive or it's political to call it greed. Greed is certainly a factor. But greed is something that is kind of foisted on it as a label because it's convenient. It's convenient for sentencing or it's convenient for a soundbite or it's convenient for an article. But mostly what we have is people who are sick and suffering. Maybe they have mental health issues. Maybe they have drug and alcohol issues. Maybe they're desperate because of other decisions they've made. There's a lot of early childhood trauma that is playing out in this behavior pattern. It's a lot of people who never thought that they were going to come close to the boundary, the border between ethical or unethical or legal and illegal behavior. And the thing that most don't have, or the thing that they mostly identify in common, is what they didn't have was 
the courage to walk into the bedroom and say to their spouse, listen, I'm in the midst of doing something that I don't want to do or that I know I shouldn't do or that I'm being asked by an employer to do or that I'm not the person who I thought I was or I'm not the earner that I thought I was. And the only way out of this right now is to stop and simplify our lives right now and just sell everything, sell the car, sell the house, sell everything, simplify, simplify. And they don't do it basically because they're afraid their spouse is going to leave them. And you can understand that because when a narcissistic guy, and it's primarily men, but when narcissistic guy has spent, say, a decade ignoring their spouses in favor of their business interests and not showing up or being a good partner, you can understand that they now feel insecure. If I can't produce the money, is my spouse going to leave me? Mm. And almost to a one, what the spouses wind up saying when we interview them after the fact is, I would love like nothing better than for my husband, for example, my husband to have come to me and said that because I missed the person I married. It's been lonely being ignored And they don't want to break up. They want to be recognized. They want to be cherished. They want to be courted again. So it's this weird societal problem where we honor the wrong things. I mean, are we really honoring family? Are we honoring some kind of success mythology that so often winds up in heartache and heartbreak? And um, Yeah. I think we know the answer to that. Part of that is kind of the sense of America as being so driven. We work more hours than pretty much any other advanced economy, laughably more, let alone what's been going on during COVID. I don't know whether your work or your research and what you've learned has spanned cultures and countries and whether the same things are going on in, I don't know, in France or in Italy or in Kazakhstan or you name it. We have taken a look at it. And of course, white collar crime is not a uniquely American phenomenon. But there's certainly a relationship between this kind of behavior and the bill of goods we were sold 100 or 125 years ago about the nuclear family and no longer being in extended families, multi-generational families and clans where children are being taught by grandparents and great-grandparents and the lessons are being passed along. So this rugged individualism, two cars in every garage that may have been founded purely as a fantasy by Henry Ford and his cohorts back then, it seems like it came to roost, you know, in a way that is really not healthy. And we're feeling it in all kinds of different ways now, where the so-called enlightenment really has destroyed in many ways our community or our sense of community and our obligation to community. Something I studied extensively in seminary. And I understand because what happened was is that I, I studied the you know, underground economy and I studied migration patterns and what it is to live in coerced liminality and to have kind of the lack of grounding, lack of footing by feeling secure. Because underlying is not what everyone wants. They want to be loved. They want structure and security. And yet, These are, in many ways, the things that we don't honor in this culture. But there are cultures in this world that still honor it. There's no question. Yeah. Switching gears a little bit, you now have not only a front row seat, but deep knowledge and empathy on white-collar crime. We're now 
dealing with and have been dealing with COVID, and I'm going to be optimistic and say post-COVID, but who knows. And the U.S. government and many other governments have provided tremendous amount of support to small businesses. I mean, an incredible amount of money has gone out the door, and a lot of people are wondering whether that money has been appropriately allocated and spent and used, and how big a problem is this actually, and what do you see from your vantage point? It's a huge problem. When you said appropriately allocated, I thought you were going to say appropriated, <laughs> which is <laughs> not the more likely scenario then. <laughs> well, I think that the amount of fraud is huge. Whether or not the government chooses to open up what is this huge can of worms is going to depend upon a lot of issues. Certainly what the administration or administrations over time are going to choose to target Generally, what prosecutors go after is low-hanging fruit, and this is the lowest hanging fruit you can possibly find because it's very simple to prosecute. The numbers are there. In terms of volume, the government pushed out almost a trillion dollars worth of money, and they know they had pre-planned for 10 or 20% of it to have been fraudulently obtained. It was baked in because they were pushing the money out so fast, and anytime you're pushing out huge amounts of money and not doing underwriting in advance, you know there are going to be people taking advantage of the system. From my standpoint, it's so fascinating because for all these years, I've lectured and I've guest mm. preached and I've helped over 500 people through these issues. And I talked about white collar crime and it's a cautionary tale and how it's affected me and how it's affected us in terms of our community. But nobody cared that my crime was SBA loan fraud because they had no perspective. It was just like an orphan issue. Nobody could relate to it. Now, of course, it's probably the number one crime and the number one source of people's anxiety in the country. Anybody, all these business people and small business people who are looking over their shoulder, wondering whether or not they're going to be audited or they're going to get a tap on the shoulder by law enforcement. And they know that this is going to be an open question for many of them for many years. For me, I didn't find out until almost three years after my crime that I was even being investigated or that I got arrested. So I shudder to think what it is for someone right now who fudged or maybe intentionally committed fraud, or more likely, the scenario is that they just weren't prepared to complete the application in a way where they had good numbers. In large companies, they have access to grant writers and they have access to financials on a daily basis. But in small companies, they're not prepared. And what the government was telling them was that these funds were going to run out quickly and you have to get your applications in quickly. And so people panicked. And I don't think that it's going to be an adequate defense two or three years from now when prosecutors, if prosecutors decide they're going to go after these small business people, it's not going to be an adequate defense that we knew our numbers were wrong, but we were moving quickly. Yeah. What about some of the bigger companies or wealthier people that every now and then you hear some report about how much money they got from the stimulus payments that may not have been, at least in theory, were not directed towards wealthy people or bigger companies. They were about small businesses and letting small businesses survive. Is that true? And are they also vulnerable? Well, for the most part, they are outliers of mm -hmm. the problem. I mean, they may be a problem in terms of using up the amount of dollars that were available, but the public companies that received the funds or the fact that there were large payments made 
either in PPP or EIDL money isn't really a problem. Over time, it's not a problem because either they were entitled to the money or they weren't entitled to the money. And for the most part, if they were entitled to the money, they got the money. The more pervasive problem is whether or not they used the money properly based upon what the rules are. So those are two separate issues. One, was I entitled to get the money? And then two, once I got the money, did I use it pursuant to the rules? And I think that the larger the company, just to stay within the confines of your question, the more likely they have compliance departments and they were able to abide by the rules. My concern, and of course my experience, is that entrepreneurs, for the most part, don't have access to the same kind of resources. They don't have general counsel. They don't have compliance departments. And also the entrepreneurs, they're kind of answering to two masters because there's the business issues and then there's the personal issues. Mm -hmm. And so whatever is more pressing or in their minds more pressing, they probably responded to. So if a mortgage payment had to get made or, or school tuition had to get paid, if they use that money for personal reasons rather than to pay for the operating needs of the business, that's where they're going to get into trouble. Yeah. Now, it's not to say that that's correct because that's against the law. And if you fudge your numbers or whatever, that's, of course, wrong. But the irony is that money that has gone to bigger entities that are very well schooled and have the financial capability and I think probably we're not the intended recipient. They're the ones that are going to be home free. And the smaller businesses are the ones, some of them, if, again, the government chooses to prosecute and go after them, they're the ones who are going to be paying the price. And again, it doesn't defend them if they fudge numbers. But philosophically, there's something wrong with that balance. Well, if you want to be really cynical, that's always the case. It's the case with everything. It's not surprising to see that in large companies that there are deferred prosecution agreements or there are non-prosecution agreements. And that's going on in other cultures as well. I mean, in Britain, for example, in their serious fraud office, which is, by the way, run by an American, so go figure. They're very proud of the fact that they have been able to move things along in a business way using deferred prosecution agreements and the like. Here, they're starting in America, they're starting to take some harsh scrutiny Mm -hmm. because there's the prosecution of the entity, of the business, and then there's the prosecution of the people behind the entity who may or may not have directly benefited from the activity of the entity. So you don't have to look beyond, for example, the uh, 2008 mortgage mm -hmm. fraud Yeah, I was uh, going to ask you about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to see where the bad actors, the people behind it, were very, very few of them were prosecuted. And this too-big-to-fail mentality, mm -hmm. you could argue, ran all the way up to the White House. And people understood that. Business people understand that. And I'm afraid that what we're doing is we're teaching business leaders and political leaders, we're teaching them the wrong values. We're teaching them the wrong things. So should it be, I'm sorry to preach here, and I don't mean that, but all of this is very closely related because it's not okay to take advantage of the system so long as you either don't get caught or if you do get caught, that you won't get prosecuted for it. It's not okay. And yet, because the benefits are so large, many people are willing to take the risk. Yeah. Jeff, we're almost out of time. I have a couple of last questions for you. Sure. One is about how you feel today as we speak. How do you feel about your life today? 
which of course could be a long, long, long discussion. And you maybe you need to talk to your therapist to give a full, full response. <laughs> but for purposes of our podcast, I'll let you answer that in short. How do you feel? How do you feel today? I feel great. I feel like um, in my natural state, I'm doing the work that's intended to do. I mean, my skill set was always there for all of these years, and I was doing the best I could to help people. But now I feel grounded. You know, mm-hmm. I feel like the value proposition of what I'm doing and how I can actually help people, especially on a holistic basis, is right there. And I'm dedicated to that. And I'm the healthiest I've been in 30 years. You know, ever since I started my drug issues, my prescription opioid issues, started in 1991. So that's 30 years ago. So to have emerged from that, hopefully much wiser with a lot of experience and to be able to bring that to bear in helping people and mankind in general, I feel great about. What's your take on Bernie Madoff? What a sick guy who I can't even imagine the levels of how sick this man was. You know, I'm always challenged with people to whether or not I should be looking at their issues as behavioral or as pathological. And I don't think it's fair to charge people who have underlying sickness Mm -hmm. to just charge them with saying they behave badly. He was a very, very sick man. And yes, of course, he was punished appropriately and a lot of people got hurt. But my God, I mean, this had to be going on for most of his life, maybe all of his life. So I can't even begin to diagnose him. Certainly, I'm not equipped to do that. But there are other people out there who are, let's just say, sociopaths. And they make it difficult for us to be able to treat other people with the kindness and compassion we need. Because as a society, we tend to paint people with a very broad brush. Yeah, and Bernie Madoff was painted, and his behavior, whatever the underlying causes were, his behavior was so abysmal as really a monster, a financial monster that caused Mm -hmm. unbelievable harm to many, many people, not just very, very rich people, although that happened too, but Mm -hmm. charities, you know, that were doing good things. And he was investing their money and investing in quotes, of course, because they lost most of that money. And then, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, your own situation, very, very different, of course, but in terms of your family and his family, the tragedy of his family as well. Well, our mutual friend, Jim Campbell, did extensive research. And I've learned a lot about this from Jim and not just through Jim's book, but also just getting to talk to Jim about it and understanding a little bit more in the mind of someone who was all the way out at the extreme. Yeah. Okay. Last question for you is about advice, which in a way you've been spending your career giving advice and over time actually figuring out that the best advice is for yourself. But this advice is kind of going back in time to when you were just, you know, say in college, 20 years old, give or take. Sure. If you could magically go back and talk to the 20 year old Jeff Grant and say, you know, if there's one thing you want to know, there's one thing you want to do, there's one thing you don't want to do. If there's something you can't possibly really understand it now because you're only 20, but boy, I wish you did, what would it be? Probably a couple of things. One would be live within your means because without the pressure of this bizarre belief that every year is going to be better than the year before and spending into a projection, living within means just avoids all the pressure. A simple life is better. And I didn't know that, but I would certainly tell the 20-year-old Jeff Grant that. The second would be who you marry is the most important decision of your life. 
And for me, the second time around, I married very, very well. Someone who wasn't like me, who complimented me. And I was someone who needed to get reeled in. And I was able to bring my strengths to Lynn, and she brought her strengths to me. And I would say the last thing is to dedicate myself to service, service to others, because that's what set me free. And I thought that money was important. And I put money before everything. I put it before my family. I put it before God. You know, it was this kind of uh, agnosticism in a way or idol worship. And boy, what three important things that would have been great to know early in my life. Yeah, yeah. Jeff Grant, those are great lessons for lots of people that are early in their life and appreciate not just that advice, but the whole conversation and your openness in sharing your story and the lessons along the way. Thank you so much for being on the SIDCast. Thank you, Sid. It was a wonderful experience. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I'm really excited to be bringing you season three and really appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single episode. I welcome all feedback and I'd love to hear from you. I've gotten some great commentary over the course of the first two seasons and lots of great suggestions as well. You can contact me via my website, www.thesidcast.com, or you could email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The SIDCast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.